Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I'm your host, Kerry Parker. Today, we have episode 311 for February 13th, 2023. And the book is finally, finally out, like for real out, like the paperback is in my hands. And for those of you into SMR, here's a little bit of uh, vicarious page flipping. This thing is just shy of 600 pages and one inch thick. It is a monster. But don't let that scare you. A lot of its pictures, actually, I should go back through and figure out how many pages are actually like pages you need to read. Uh, but, but it's definitely not 600 pages. But I got to say, it's it's really, it's really thorough. And it is the best version of this book that I've created by far. So it is still on mega sale on Amazon, by the way. So if you're going to buy it now is a great time to do it. I have no idea how much longer it's going to last. I don't know why they sell it for like half off, but they are. So if you're going to buy it or if you're going to buy some as gifts, now would be the best time to do that. I did write an article about the book release. Uh, if you go to fdsd.me slash fifth, that's five T-H. It has all the info you need. It's actually, yeah, obviously it's a shameless plug. You know, it's about the book, but it actually kind of explains, you know, why this stuff is important for you and how this book will help you, how you can use this book to help others. And then if you're interested, if you really would like to support the mission of making people as secure and private as possible, because let's face it, the more of us that do these things, the better off that we will all be. There's a really nice list of lots of things that you can do, very specific things you can do, things you might not be thinking about doing, things you might not have considered uh, that would really help me spread the word. So check that article out, share it around with friends and family, post it on social media, help me get the word out. I think I mentioned this, but I've gotten some really, really nice endorsements from some top security and privacy folks, including, for example, Andy Yen, the CEO of Proton. Those are on Amazon. You can see it as part of the description there, but they're also listed on the page for the book on my website. So you can check them out there. Uh, I have also created a, a little workbook, a little free PDF downloadable workbook that you can download. If you buy the book, it'll help you kind of keep track of the tips in the book and which ones you've completed and which ones you've decided maybe to skip. So you can find all that information on the website. Definitely check that out. So we've got a news show for you today. We've got a lot of different topics to cover. We'll start off talking about uh, a mysterious leak of uh, booking.com reservation data and how it's being used to scam customers. Two top background check services have been hit by a data breach. A Finnish psychotherapy extortion suspect has been arrested in France. The Federal Trade Commission is taking on telehealth data sharing problems. The ACLU has filed a brief against Google giving police your mobile data. Anchor has finally admitted that it screwed up with its Eufy security cameras and fixed the problems, hopefully. Bitwarden has gotten really popular after the last pass breach, and because they are now popping up on a lot of people's radars, this, of course, is when the bad guys step in to take advantage of their newfound popularity. They have been targeting prospective Bitwarden users with phony and malicious downloads of the Bitwarden app. A maker of stalkerware has been fined, and more importantly, has been compelled to notify its victims. And finally, we've got a story about a new standard for Internet of Things devices that will hopefully, hopefully make them more secure. Then I've got my dear Carrie question of the week. I'm going to talk about IPv4 versus IPv6. And then we'll have my tip of the week where I talk about why and how you should plant your flag. All right, so plenty of stuff to cover. Let's get to it. All right, lots of news to cover today, and that's, most of it's not good, unfortunately. Uh, this one's from Ars Technica, uh, and it's about 
what appears to be a mysterious leak of uh, reservation data from Booking.com. For almost five years, Booking.com customers have been on the receiving end of a continuous series of scams that clearly demonstrate that criminals have obtained travel plans and other personal information customers provided on the travel site. One of the more recent shakedowns happened to an Rs reader who asked not to be identified by his real name. A few months ago, Thomas, as I'll call him, reserved and paid for a two-night stay scheduled for this July in a hotel in Italy. Last week, out of the blue, he received two emails. The headers show that the first message came from the genuine Booking.com domain. It purported to have been sent on behalf of the hotel in Italy and asked that he click a non-existent confirm button for his upcoming stay. It informed him that the hotel would, quote, also transfer all bookings made from that address to your account, unquote. As fishy as that sounds, and the article spelled that P-H-I-S-H-Y, as fishy as that sounds, the email included his full name, the confirmation number of his reservation, the correct name of the hotel, and the dates of his stay. A second email purported to also have been sent by Booking.com on behalf of the hotel, but headers show that it was sent by an address from Yandex.net. The email included the previously mentioned confirmation button that led to the URL that was generated by the Russian shortening service, NAH.UY. Clicking on the confirmation button led Thomas to an almost perfect replica of the real Booking.com webpage. It too showed his name, the dates, and the hotel of his stay, and the exact fare he was charged and went on to direct him to enter his payment card. Thomas then received a WhatsApp message sent to the number Booking.com had on file for him. It posed as a message from the hotel he had booked with and asked if he needed any parking during his stay. Thomas didn't share any of his travel details online. That means the personal information in these scammer-sent emails came either directly or indirectly from Booking.com. It remains unclear precisely how the scammers obtained it. At this point, it's easy to chalk up the mystery to some sort of isolated slip-up. Web searches, however, show that scams with almost all the same elements have been going on repeatedly for at least five years. In this thread from 2018, and in the article, this is a, a link that you can click, a Reddit user reported receiving an email informing them that the reservation they had made with Booking.com was on hold because the credit card they had used during the booking couldn't be processed. These scammers also had the correct information number and precise charge for the reservation. A fellow Reddit user pointed to this article headlined Booking.com customers targeted by hackers in WhatsApp and text scam. It reported that multiple hotels had been targeted by WhatsApp texts that attempted to steal large sums of money from customers. The messages contained names, addresses, phone numbers, confirmation numbers, booking dates, and prices. Booking.com told the publication that there had been no compromise on Booking.com systems, but that a, quote, small number of properties had been targeted by phishing emails sent by cybercriminals, and by clicking on those emails, the properties compromised their accounts, unquote. The company added that, quote, all potential impacted guests have been notified, unquote. Web searches show that since the article and Reddit thread went live in June of 2018, the same scam played out repeatedly over the years and has continued right up until this month. It's hard to understand how, after five years, the leak in Booking.com's partner network continues to spill private data that leaves customers open to scams and other forms of fraud. The company's insistence that its systems haven't been breached is little comfort to those affected. No doubt, no travel site is immune to partner breaches, but anecdotal evidence overwhelmingly suggests Booking.com customers are the most targeted. Until Booking.com comes clean, people would do well to book travel using a different site. 
All right. So as usual, this article was longer than that. I trimmed some things out. It actually did mention some uh, other sites as well, some other booking sites like this one that have had similar scam problems. So it's not just booking.com, but there's a lot of evidence that booking.com in particular has seen a lot of scams, uh, in particular, their customers uh, have seen scams. I mean, it's, it's an extremely popular website. So some of that is probably just due to its sheer popularity. Now, I've used booking.com myself, but what I'm going to be doing going forward and what I suggest that you do is you could use booking.com or sites like these to find your deals, to you know search through multiple properties and find the thing you're looking for. But to really avoid problems like this, when you're done, I would just leave that site and go book directly with you know whatever hotel uh, that you decided you want to stay with and skip booking through booking.com or any of these sort of deal aggregator sites. It just reduces the number of places that your information is being kept and with whom it's being shared. Now, I realize that what that means is that when you do this, booking.com is not going to get a cut of this transaction, which is how they make their money and how they provide their services. But if they can't keep your data secure, then they don't deserve to get a cut of that. All right, next up, this is from Tech Radar. Two of the biggest online background check services have suffered recent data breaches that saw sensitive data on millions of their users leaked online. News of the attack on Truthfinder and Instant Checkmate was confirmed by PeopleConnect, the company that owns both affected organizations. Background checkers are services that allow people to do their due diligence on other people. Whether when looking to employ someone or for any other reason, people can use these services which aggregate publicly available data which would otherwise take quite some time to gather. Federal, state, or court records, criminal records, social media data, etc. To use these services, they need to subscribe, and now hackers obtain the data belonging to these subscribers. In late January, someone posted a thread on the breached hacking forum, we just talked about that in the previous article, claiming to have obtained sensitive data on 20.22 million customers of the aforementioned firms who used it by April 16th, 2019. Of that, almost 12 million were instant checkmate users and 8.2 million were Truthfinder. Around 4.6 thousand remaining accounts belong to other service providers. In the incident, attackers stole identity data, people's email addresses, hashed passwords, full names, and phone numbers. Soon after the post, PeopleConnect confirmed the breach. And this is a quote from them. Quote, we learned recently that a list including name, email, telephone number in some instances, as well as securely encrypted passwords and expired and inactive password reset tokens of Truthfinder subscribers was being discussed and made available in an online forum. We have confirmed that the list was created several years ago and appears to include all customer accounts created between 2011 and 2019. The published list originated inside our company, unquote. PeopleConnect said it will know more once it concludes its investigation, but first reports indicate that this was either a, quote, inadvertent leak or theft of a particular list, unquote. Obviously, we need to learn more. They are investigating, but I wanted to get this on your radar in case perhaps you were a customer of one of these services. But the bigger picture here is the fact that these services exist at all. There are a lot of them. If you go looking around for people search services, there are a ton of them or background check services. And what almost all of these things do is work with what we call open source intelligence or OSINT. And you could dig up an amazing amount of information about people through public records and social media. Michael Bazell has two books on this, one on how to find this information and another one on how to prevent your information from being there that you might check into. One is extreme privacy and one is OSINT techniques. But he also has on his website uh, of Intel techniques, uh, a list of OSINT tools that you can try out yourself. 
They're public tools. Uh, some of these things might charge a fee, but most of them don't. And he has a one-stop shop webpage that lists dozens, literally dozens of categories of tools. I mean, it's, it's unbelievably exhaustive. There's a link in the show notes if you want more information on that. All right, next up, this is from Naked Security. And this is, this is really scary. This is the kind of data breach that could be a serious, serious problem. And this is actually a much longer article. I tried to pare this down as much as I could to give you just the most important info. But if you want to learn more about this, again, follow the link in the show notes. In October of 2022, we asked you to imagine being stuck in the following awful situation. And this is a quote from a previous article they did. Imagine that you'd spoken in what you thought was total confidence to a psychotherapist, but the contents of your sessions had been saved for posterity, along with precise personal identification details, such as your unique national ID number, and perhaps including additional information, such as notes about your relationship with your family. And then, as if that were not bad enough, imagine that the words you'd never expected to be typed in and saved at all, let alone indefinitely, had been made accessible over the internet, allegedly protected by little more than a default password giving anyone access to everything. Sadly, for tens of thousands of trusting patients of the now-bankrupt psychotherapy center Vastamo, and I'm sorry if I pronounced that wrong, that really happened. Worse, a cybercriminal found his way into the poorly secured system and stole all that ultra-personal data. Worse still, the company responsible for keeping that data secure decided to keep quiet about the intrusion, with the company's CEO apparently deciding that he could get away with hiding the breach from the authorities as long as no publicly visible harm came of it. But the breach couldn't be denied anymore once the company was hit up with a blackmail demand for 450,000 euros. Ultimately, as reported in the Helsinki Times in late 2022 in an article entitled Prosecutors, Vastamo's Information Security Was in Absolute Chaos, the now former CEO was charged personally with data protection offenses, even though the company itself was the victim of a cybercrime. Worst of all was that when the company itself refused to pay the blackmail money, which, as we pointed out last year, wouldn't have done much good given that the data was already been stolen, the extortionist turned their attention directly on the company's patients. Patients were blackmailed to the tune of 200 euros each, with cybersecurity journal sleuth Brian Krebs reporting in 2022 that the demand jumped to 500 euros if the initial fee wasn't paid within 24 hours, followed by publication of the personal details 48 hours after that. The hacker threatened to release not only the sort of information that would help other crooks to carry out identity theft, including contact details and ID data, but also the saved transcripts of the patient's conversations that we mentioned at the top of this article. The Finnish authorities issued an arrest warrant for the suspected hacker in October of 2022. Well, the Finns have just announced that the suspect has been apprehended in France where he has been locked up while his extradition to Finland is being processed. Brian Krebs, who is well known for digging into the histories of notorious hackers and hacking suspects, has published a report listing a string of previous cyber crimes for which this person has been convicted, apparently including denial of service attacks under the banner of Lizard Squad, theft of source code from Adobe, use of stolen credit cards, and more. According to Krebs, the suspect was convicted of, quote, orchestrating more than 50,000 cybercrimes, unquote, but got away with a suspended sentence and a small fine, having been under 18 at the time of that criminal activity. After he'd evaded a prison sentence, says Krebs, the Lizard Squad hacking group openly boasted on Twitter that, quote, all the people have said that we would rot in prison, don't want to comprehend that what we've been saying since the beginning is we have free passes, unquote. 
If this extradition from France is approved in this case and he's convicted, we can't imagine the consequences being quite so much of a free pass this time. Now he's 25 years old. And then the article has a little, you know, what to do section. And this is really aimed more at businesses than at individuals, but I'm going to read it just in case some of you might be in a position of protecting other people's data. Two things. First, rehearse what you will do if you suffer a breach yourself. You are not preparing to fail if you do so, but you are failing to prepare if you don't. Learn what your reporting obligations are and practice what you would say to those affected by the breach. As this case suggests, prompt disclosure would at least have prevented tens of thousands of vulnerable people finding out about the breach from extortion demands made directly to them and their families. Number two, consider filing a personal report if you are caught up in a breach. This helps regulators and law enforcement collect evidence, helps to determine an appropriate level of response. If no one says anything, then it's hard to convince a court that real harm is done and helps the authorities demand higher cybersecurity standards in the future. So yeah, wow, this is horrible. And honestly, this is, this is really weird because I mean, we've all got relationships with various doctors and therapists and, and other people. And I'll be honest, after I've learned about things like this, there are times when I'll be in a session like this and I will actually say to them, okay, look, I don't want you to write this down. So let's call this a hypothetical question. If I'm going to ask something that is, you know, kind of tangential or, or that I think might be compromising uh, in my personal record, I will basically straight up ask my doctor, like, you know, I'm going to ask you this question, but I don't want you to keep this in the personal record. But I mean, let's face it, if any of us have been to the doctor or been to a therapist and we've probably given them all sorts of extremely personal and private information, things that could be used to blackmail us or would at least be extremely embarrassing if they got loose. Now there are laws and in the US and other countries for trying to protect this data. But I mean, mistakes do happen. And as we'll see in the next article, not everybody is restricted by some of these laws. Like in the United States, many people think that the HIPAA Act, which is supposed to protect your health information, doesn't apply to everybody. And if you're not careful, you can give that information to people who are not restricted from sharing it with others. We need to do better. I mean, we've... We've got to have security and privacy by design. A lot of these systems are still not good enough. They are trying to protect your data, but they're, they're not good enough. Honestly, I think that the solid idea, that's an acronym, I forget what it stands for, but the idea of me owning my data, like for example, my medical data and being able to house that data with any company that I want and, and then grant access to it on a, on a temporary basis, I think might be a better way to go than just trusting all these companies to do it on my behalf. So with that, let's, let's go to the next troubling article. And this one is from The Markup. In a first-of-its-kind action with broad implications for the telehealth industry, the Federal Trade Commission, or the FTC, on Wednesday sought a court order to prevent GoodRx, a popular website that provides discount on prescription drugs, from sharing users' sensitive health data for advertising purposes. The FTC alleges that GoodRx, which allows shoppers to compare drug prices and access discounts, promised never to share health data with advertisers, but nonetheless sent details about customers' medications and medical conditions to Facebook, Google, and other companies via invisible digital trackers installed on its website. Consumer Reports first uncovered the data breaches in 2020. And this is a quote from Samuel Levine, uh, director of the FTC's Bureau of Consumer Protections, and this is from their press release, quote, Digital health companies and mobile apps should not cash in on consumers' extremely sensitive and personally identifiable health information. The FTC is serving notice that it will use all of its legal authority to protect American consumers' sensitive data from misuse and illegal exploitation, unquote. 
The FTC's order must still be approved by the U.S. District Court for the Northern District of California. However, GoodRx has already agreed to the terms while admitting no wrongdoing. This is the first time the agency has sought to permanently ban a company from sharing customers' health data with third parties for advertising purposes. In previous enforcement actions, the FTC had instead taken a more reserved approach, requiring companies to reform their practices and meet the clear and informed consent standard. In other words, the companies could continue to share customers' data with third parties so long as they accurately and prominently explain the data sharing and obtain customers' permission. It's also the first time that the FTC has sought to sanction a company under its health breach notification rule, which requires organizations to notify consumers when their digital health information has been improperly exposed. As part of its settlement, GoodRx agreed to pay $1.5 million fine under the rule. The agency's GoodRx order and earlier warnings suggest it intends to dust off the 13-year-old rule to crack down on the growing number of online companies that collect and share customers' medical information but are not covered by the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act, or the HIPAA. From at least October of 2017 through March of 2019, GoodRx's privacy policy stated that the company would, quote, never provide advertisers any information that reveals a personal health condition or personal health, health information, unquote, according to the FTC's complaint. The company's Hey Doctor webpage, which is now called GoodRx Care, at one point also displayed a seal falsely suggesting that it complied with HIPAA. But in one example from an August 2019 advertising campaign, the FTC alleges that GoodRx uploaded a list of its customers to Facebook that included their emails, phone numbers, and the names of medications they'd purchased. It then targeted those customers with health-related ads. And at several points between 2017 and 2019, GoodRx allegedly manually reconfigured a tracker from Facebook on its website to ensure it would collect similar personal health information, according to the FTC complaint. The FTC's more aggressive approach in the GoodRx case adds to a mounting pressure on health websites and providers to control their use of trackers from Facebook, Google, and other advertising platforms. So this is a real, real freaking problem. There's a lot of these sites. I've seen advertising for these on TV quite a bit, and they're usually around getting discounts for prescriptions, but it's for all sorts of health-related stuff. Basically, come to our site and we'll help you find discounts and help you get the best deals on you know, medical stuff, personal stuff. And so, you know, how do these guys make money? Well, okay, they're probably getting kickbacks from the referrals, but they're apparently also gathering and selling your health data to other people and and or to target you with other advertising. That's just, man, we just, (laughs) I don't know what else to say. We've got to stop this. This is horrible, but it's basically legal. I mean, the FTC is doing what it can here. But in cases like this, without a really decent privacy law, all they can really kind of get these guys on is unfair business practices, basically. It's like going after Al Capone for tax evasion. We actually need to make the underlying, we actually need to make our data private by law and just make all this sharing illegal. It's just, it's just horrible. All right, next up, this is from Computer World, and it's about pushing back against Google's giving up lots of information to law enforcement that really appears to be skirting the Fourth Amendment. We've talked about this before, and this is a little bit of a long article, so bear with me. But I'm glad to see that the ACLU and others are stepping up to to defend our rights. Okay, so here we go. 
The ACLU and eight federal public defenders are asking the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals to exclude mobile device location data obtained from Google via a so-called geofence warrant that helped law enforcement catch a bank robbery suspect. The first geofence civil rights case to reach a federal court of appeals raises serious Fourth Amendment concerns against unreasonable search and seizure related to the location and personal information of mobile device users. Geofence warrants have primarily been issued for Google to hand over data about every cell phone or other mobile device within a specific geographical region and time frame. The problem? Location data on every person carrying a mobile device in that area is scooped up in a wide net and their data is then handed over en masse to law enforcement. And this is a quote from Tom McBrien, a law fellow uh, with the uh, Electronic Privacy Information Center, or EPIC. Uh, Tom says, quote, these warrants are patently unconstitutional. They look through everyone's location history within that geographical area to see where they were at the time, unquote. Geofence warrants violate the Fourth Amendment of the U.S. Constitution on several fronts, McBrien argued. First, the amendment requires that evidentiary warrants meet the particularity requirement, meaning police must be specific about what and who they're seeking to find with the data. The warrants can't turn into fishing expeditions, McBrien said. Second, probable cause requires law enforcement to link a specific person or persons to a crime. Only in that case does the law allow the invasion of privacy that comes with geofence data access. And here's another quote from McBrien, quote, Google has a rich database of user information. You either have a Google phone or you have a Google service. Google has made it very hard to opt out of location tracking. Even after turning off the specific feature on your mobile phone, Google can still track you through another service or app such as Google Maps, unquote. The problem with geofence warrants goes beyond gaining access to copious amounts of mobile user location data that may or may not have anything to do with a crime. Thousands of innocent individuals each year are effectively turned into suspects in criminal investigations through the use of the warrants, according to a Harvard Law Review post. And the quote from that post says, quote, while traditional court orders permit searches related to known suspects, geofence warrants are issued specifically because a suspect cannot be identified, unquote. The use of geofence warrants has been snowballing over the past seven years. Since the first one was served on Google in 2016, the number of warrants has increased more than 1,000% every year, according to Epic. Google received 982 geofence warrants in 2018, 8,396 a year later, and 11,554 in 2020, according to the latest data released by the company. The overwhelming majority of the warrants were issued by courts to state and local law enforcement. While geofence warrants are considered a powerful investigatory tool by law enforcement, and the hope is that law enforcement will only use data relevant to their investigation of a crime, there's no way to know for sure, Bruce Schneier said. And this is a quote from Bruce. He says, quote, The thing about abuses in these instances is they're hidden. If there's an abuse, you're not going to know because of parallel construction, which is the way data obtained illegally is washed and not used in court, but data obtained from that data is used, unquote. Last Friday, the ACLU and public defenders issued a friend-of-the-court brief requesting mobile device location data obtained from Google be excluded from evidence, while noting that geolocation warrants are becoming increasingly common. In the amicus brief, the ACLU and public defenders argued that geofence warrants can incidentally reveal a wealth of information about the confidential associations of individuals swept up in their net, from a meeting between a journalist and a source to attendance at a church. In its statement, the ACLU said law enforcement has seized on the opportunity presented by this, quote, information stockpile, crafting geofence warrants that seek location data for every user within a particular area, unquote. 
There's a relative dearth of case law addressing geofence warrants, according to Evix McBrien. Currently, the law enforcement agencies are only held in check by the courts, and they push the envelope whenever they can, he said. Schneier is not as confident the courts will address the problem quickly and said it's up to citizens to demand that lawmakers use legislation to limit the reach of geofence warrants, and citizens need to push Congress to address the issue. Another quote from Bruce, quote, The laws have to be changed. There's no magic thing you can do on your phone to protect it. These are systemic problems that need systemic solutions. So make this a political issue, unquote. McBrien believes the courts will eventually catch up with the technology and set limits on what geofence data can be distributed to law enforcement. In the meantime, he agreed with Schneier. A two-pronged approach using both laws and the courts is the best to ensure constitutional rights to privacy and against unreasonable search and seizure are upheld. For example, the New York State Legislature is currently considering the Reverse Location Search Prohibition Act, which would prohibit the search, with or without a warrant, of geolocation and keyword data of a group of people who are under no individual suspicion of having committed a crime. And one final quote from McBrien, quote, Part of this is society needs to become aware of the problem, unquote. And that is why I am reading this article to you now. We need to be aware that these things are happening. We need to understand the implications of this sort of technology. We need to be aware of the potential abuses for this sorts of data. And I want to circle back to one thing that Bruce said about washing the data. And it's this notion of what we call parallel construction. Basically, this is a trick used by law enforcement when they've got a way to get information on somebody that may not pass muster or in, in the case of stingrays, if you remember us talking about cell site simulators, they don't want the public to know about. So what they'll do in cases like this is they will use the tools that are shady or the practices that are shady to find the data they need. And then they will find some other way to get that same data that's legal. And in this article, it actually gave an example of that. And it was something like, well, the NSA is, you know, maybe watching something and the FBI needs to get data on somebody. And the NSA could basically go to the FBI and say, well, we can't tell you how we know this, but you might want to put an FBI officer on this corner at this time. And then lo and behold, that FBI officer observes something uh, that it, via a method, which is completely admissible in court, that leads to some law enforcement action. So the way the FBI person knew to be there was shady, but the fact that that person just happened to be there and was able to witness something, or yeah, and this is just an example, there's other ways this can go down. But basically, they, this parallel construction is, is they come up with a secondary method for obtaining the same evidence that is legit, or that will hold up in court, but they would never have known to do that if they had not had this other method that was shady or would not be admissible, and so they use the one to wash the other. So look, I, I understand that we need to investigate crimes, but we have the Constitution. People have rights. And so there are rules for the road that need to be followed. And these geofence warrants are extremely problematic. And I'm really glad to see that this is making its way through the courts. And maybe we'll finally get some sort of a legal ruling on whether or not this practice is kosher or not. And it sure seems to me that it's not. But that is for the courts to decide. And I will keep you posted if anything comes out of that. All right, next up, this is from 9to5Mac. I had told you before about a company called Yeefy, or that's how I pronounce it, E-U-F-Y. I don't think I've ever actually heard it officially pronounced. Uh, it's a division of Anchor who makes a lot of electronic equipment. A lot of really good stuff. I've, I own a lot of Anchor products. I own some Yeefy products. I've recommended Yeefy cameras for a long time over Amazon's Ring doorbell cameras, for example. But I had to kind of rescind that when the story came out last year that they were not being as secure with their data feeds as they said they were. And then they came out with their rather mealy mouth response, which nobody really believed. And it turns out, lo and behold, 
<laughs> they were wrong. They actually were screwing up. Um, but anyway, let me read this article and then I'll, I'll talk more about it. Anchor has admitted that its statements about Eufy security cameras encryption were not accurate. The smart home brand had previously stated that all video footage is end-to-end -end encrypted, but has now admitted that there was an exception to this, which it has now fixed. The company only finally came clean about the privacy breach after The Verge threatened to post a story about the company's failure to answer its questions. The security flaw was first discovered in December of last year when a customer was able to access unencrypted video streams using the popular VLC media player. A security researcher confirmed this and additionally proved that video data was being uploaded to the cloud even when the user denied permission for this. This followed a similar incident back in 2021 when users were able to view live and recorded camera feeds from complete strangers. Yuffie blamed that one on a bug and promised to contact the, quote, 0.001% of users, unquote, affected. Yuffie brand owner Anchor took almost three weeks to respond to the December case before issuing a statement with a partial admission that its security claims weren't true. And this is from Anchor's press release or whatever. It says, quote, no user data has been exposed and the potential security flaws discussed online are speculative. However, we do agree that there were some key areas for improvement, so we have made authentication changes, unquote. At the time, The Verge posted a lengthy list of questions for Anchor to answer. It seems the publication has been struggling to get answers as it only got a response by threatening to post a story about the company's failure to address them. It reports that Anchor has finally admitted to two things it had previously denied. First, its cameras can transmit unencrypted video footage. Second, there is one circumstance in which they do. We now also have an explanation about the difference between the theory and the company's original claims and the reality. Video sent to the companion iPhone and Android app did indeed use end-to-end encryption as claimed. Anyone who intercepted that stream would not be able to view the video. The same thing was true of recorded footage sent to the web. That too used end-to-end -end encryption. However, live video streams sent to the web were not encrypted, nor even authenticated, meaning that the streaming footage could be viewed by anyone who gained access to the link. Anchor does finally seem to realize that it has a lot of work to do if anyone is ever to trust it again. First, it says, it is remotely updating every single Eufy camera to send only encrypted footage to the web portal. Second, it is commissioning external security companies to audit its practices and conduct penetration testing, where consultants use hacking techniques to attempt to gain access. It will ask a quote-unquote well-known security expert to write an independent report. Finally, it will create a bug bounty program which will incentivize security researchers and hackers to find and report vulnerabilities. As the old saying has it, never ascribe to malice that which can be adequately explained by incompetence. Given the nature of the flaw, I tend to believe the company did not knowingly lie or mislead anyone. And of course, the I here is the reporter, not me. I'll give you my take in a second. Rather, its management failed to realize that a massive flaw existed simply because it related to a feature, viewing live video feeds on the video portal, that was hardly ever used by anyone. However, this is no excuse. Inadvertent or not, it did lie. When a security camera company promises that all video footage never leaves the camera without end-to-end -end encryption, it must be 100% certain that this statement is correct. It is simply not good enough to believe this to be the case. Even more inexcusable is continuing to make inaccurate claims after the company's statements have been demonstrated to be false. When that happens, you don't blithely continue to repeat the same reassurances. You immediately verify the claim, which was trivial to do, admit to it, and then fix it. 
The fact that Anchor didn't do this is, in my view, unforgivable. And again, that's the view of the reporter. So my take on this, I, I wouldn't be maybe quite so harsh. My guess is almost surely that this was incompetence and not malice. I mean, you can't cop to something if you don't know it exists. I am sure that the marketing folks who put out all those claims were told in no uncertain terms by their engineering departments that that was the truth. Somebody somewhere screwed up. This was a bug. But bugs are going to happen. So to me, what they, where they really screwed up here is that they didn't cop to this immediately. It was like this article says, it was trivial to show that what these security guys were saying was true. They should have verified it themselves. They should have immediately copped to the problem and then fixed it. They did some of those things. They didn't do all of those things. So, you know, it's, it's definitely, it's not good. There were definitely mistakes made here, but like we've talked about before with LastPass, I mean, in some cases, I mean, if you, if you, if you stop using every single company that ever makes a mistake, you're going to quickly run out of companies to use. So mistakes are going to be made. Security is never perfect. Breaches are going to happen. There's going to be coding mistakes that are made. There are going to be situations that are going to be overlooked. You want these companies to do their absolute best. You want them to do the right thing, but there, there will be mistakes. So when those mistakes do happen, they need to be fixed right away. The companies need to own up to them. They need to apologize profusely, and they need to make things right as best they can. I am still using my Eufy doorbell. I, I don't know what I would replace it with if I didn't. I certainly wouldn't be a ring doorbell. Let's just hope that after this incident, they'll tighten things down. And it sounds like they're doing the right things. They're going to get some independent third-party audits. That's all good. They're pushing out software updates. I'm okay with that. They could have handled this a lot better, but they did eventually handle it. And they did eventually own up to what was going on here. Okay, a few more articles left. And a couple of them are actually good news. Uh, but not this next one. <laughs> this next one's from PC World. Popular password managers like LastPass and 1Password have had a rough time of it for the last year. An open source competitor Bitwarden has quickly emerged as an ideal alternative. But with notoriety comes vulnerability. It's the opposite of security through obscurity. Bitwarden has become so popular that it looks like some unscrupulous actors are trying to take advantage of it and hosting Google ads for phony, presumably malicious downloads masquerading as the security tool. After users on Bitwarden's company forums and Reddit started seeing suspicious ads, company representatives have alerted the user base of the phishing scheme, recommending that people go directly to the Bitwarden download page instead of Googling for it. Those who spot the legitimate ads should use Google's built-in reporting tools to remove them. Paying legitimate advertising networks to spread fake information is an indictment of said network's lack of moderation. But it's also nothing new. Earlier this year, Google ran ads for AMD Radeon drivers that were, in fact, sending users to malware downloads. Google's intentionally vague labeling of text ads taking the place of the first search results on pretty much every major lucrative search term doesn't help. And Google isn't the only guilty party. I've personally seen similar fakes showing up in high-ranking Microsoft Bing searches, too. According to user screenshots, the Bitwarden fake is a convincing one, recreating the password manager's login page in a nearly pixel-perfect fashion. The only way to spot the fake was by knowing the genuine URL and comparing it to the phony one, bitwardenlogin.com in this case. Signing into this fake page would give its owners the full login information for your password manager a potentially disastrous outcome. Since Bitwarden is becoming a popular tool and a frequent recommendation for less tech-savvy users, <laughs> I don't know why it's for less tech-savvy users, it's disheartening that Google appears to be putting the burden of policing its own advertising network on the backs of regular innocent surfers. 
So I've said this many, many times before, be very, very careful when you're downloading software, always, always go to the source. It can sometimes be tricky to figure out what the right source is. You can't just do a web search, certainly not on sites like Google, because a lot of times the very first results are advertising and they're not well labeled as ads. They look like all the other search results, but they were paid for by somebody. And through what's called malvertising, some of these companies buy these ad spaces and send you to the wrong place and then have you download and install malware. And when something gets really, really popular, really, really quick, you know, whenever there's some viral sensation or just really popular Microsoft office and Adobe products, you know, these are common targets for bad guys creating malware and knockoffs and things like that, because they know that a lot of people want these products. So you just got to be really, really careful out there. And in my book, this is, this is why you block ads. And certainly this is why you don't use Google as your search engine. I use uBlock Origin on my browser to block most ads. I use NextDNS to block a lot of other ads and tracking so that I've not even shown these things in the first place. I currently use Brave as my search engine right now. There's a, some other interesting ones popping up on the horizon that I'm going to be looking at, like Neva, but I've also used DuckDuckGo. These search engines, by the way, can show you ads as well but it's much more obvious that they are ads and they're not tracking you to do it. Okay, moving on. Two more articles left, and these are actually some positive news to end on. Uh, first, a statement from the Electronic Frontier Foundation. Last week, the New York Attorney General secured a $410,000 fine from Patrick Hinchy and 16 companies that he runs which produce and sell spyware and stalkerware. In addition, he and his companies must modify their stalkerware to alert victims that their devices have been compromised. This sends a clear message to app developers who make their money by surreptitiously installing software to spy on the devices of others. The state of New York will not tolerate your actions. EFF has long championed the fight against stalkerware. Our director of cybersecurity, Eva Galperin, who I've had on the show once a while back, helped found the Coalition Against Stalkerware three years ago. In this time, we've urged legislators and rulemakers to take the threat stalkerware poses to the safety and privacy of its victims just as seriously as other forms of malware. Stalkerware, a type of commercially available surveillance software, is installed on phones without device users' knowledge or consent to secretly spy on them. The apps track victims' locations and allow abusers to read their text messages, monitor phone calls, see photos, videos, and web browsing, and much more. It's being used all over the world to intimidate, harass, and harm victims, and as a favorite tool for stalkers and abusive spouses of ex or ex-partners. In a press release announcing the fine, New York's Attorney General Letitia James put it in no unclear terms. Quote, these apps and products put New Yorkers at risk of stalking domestic abuse and were aggressively promoted by Patrick Hinchy through 16 different companies. Today's agreement will block these companies from allowing New Yorkers to be monitored without their awareness and will continue our ongoing fight to protect New Yorkers' rights, safety, and privacy, unquote. Welcome as it is, more work remains. The business of selling spyware and stalkerware still presents lucrative opportunities to those unconcerned by the harms they cause, and many of its players aren't as easy to impose penalties on or even identify. Last year, we urged the FTC to investigate a stalkerware app network, which was the subject of a TechCrunch report. Our call on the FTC to investigate this dangerous network still stands. We applaud the state of New York for standing up for the victims of this harmful and invasive industry. We hope other states will follow the example New York has set in protecting its own citizens from these harms. So yeah, that's a very, very good thing. 
And what I think is really cool is not, again, not so much the find, but basically this person has to change their software to alert their users. Hey, by the way, there's stalkerware on your phone. Thought you should know. Which, of course, defeats the whole purpose of the spyware. A lot of these things, by the way, are targeted toward parents who want to monitor their kids, which a lot of people would kind of sympathize with. But even in that case, the point is the kids should know. In my book and in other cases, I certainly advocate for parents to keep track of what their kids are up to, to a, a certain extent. There has, you know, depending on their age and what they're into and what kind of maybe dangerous things they might be participating in, parents should definitely be engaged, but it should be completely transparent. These same apps that could be used to, to surreptitiously monitor what kids are doing on their phone, including like turning on the mic and the camera and doing all sorts of crazy surveillance activities through the phones are being used by adults on other adults without them knowing it. And that just has to stop. So very happy to see this. Hopefully we'll get more of this. Hopefully we'll actually outlaw this at some point. All right, last up, this is from ZDNet. The U.S. Department of Commerce's Technical Standards Organization, NIST, that's National Institute of Science and Technology, I think, has nominated the ASCON, that's A-S-C-O-N, Group of Cryptographic Algorithms for Protecting Small Devices and the Information Transmitted to and from IoT Devices. NIST will later this year publish the Lightweight Cryptography Standard after picking the ASCON family for the task. It selected the algorithms to protect a vast array of devices, sensors, and actuators. The algorithms are also designed for implanted medical devices, stress detectors inside roads and bridges, and keyless entry fobs for vehicles. Many of these devices operate with low power that the lightweight cryptography needs to account for when protecting information on and transmitting from them. And this is a quote from NIST, quote, The world is moving toward using small devices for lots of tasks, ranging from sensing to identification to machine control. And because these small devices have limited resources, they need security that has a compact implementation. These algorithms should cover most devices that have these sorts of resource constraints, unquote. NIST selected ASCON in 2019 as the primary candidate for lightweight authentication encryption, so, it had, so it's had lots of time to put it through tests. ASCON was developed in 2014 by a team of cryptographers from Graz University of Technology, Infineon Technologies, Lamar Security Research, and Radbound University. McKay, who's the NIST spokesperson, noted that there are seven variants in the ASCON family. Two very important ones are authentication encryption with associated data, that's AEAD, and hashing. And don't worry too much about this. Let me just get through this last, last paragraph. You don't have to worry about the details. AEAD allows a message to be encrypted while leaving the header of the message and the device's IP address in plain text. NIST points out that the AEAD can be used in vehicle-to-vehicle -vehicle communications. It can also prevent spoofing messages exchanged with radio frequency identification tags, RFID. Meanwhile, hashing could be used to check if a software's update is valid and has been downloaded correctly. All right, so sorry for the word salad there at the end. But basically, NIST, who recommends security practices and protocols, has come up with a set of protocols that it wants to recommend for basically the Internet of Things, which cannot happen soon enough. These devices are very low power. They're very cheap. And so they really need their kind of their own special class of cryptographic standards that companies can adopt and easily use uh, for their products. So the next step is to actually get these products to use these things and then, and then to declare somehow in a transparent way that they are using them. And then, of course, having them 
independently verified by third parties, we've got, we've got a long way to go. Uh, but this is basically the first step in that process. So that's really good news. All right. So there's your news of the week. I had to take a, take a drink of water there. You can tell my, my voice is getting a little hoarse. Sorry about that. Okay. So we've got our Dear Carrie question of the week. And this is from Dustin in Colorado Springs. And Dustin says, what are the main differences of IPv4 and, I, and IPv6? What are the pros and cons? I know it increases the potential IP addresses exponentially. I noticed one of the settings in my VPN says IPv6 for WireGuard VPN. Enable IPv6 protocol inside VPN tunnel. When I enable this, it seems to cause some connection problems, so I keep it off. Any suggestions or insights? All right, as usual, let me do a little background here. So internet protocol, IP, is the basis for the entire web and more. But when you make a connection, your web browser to some server, when your devices are talking to each other on the network, when your phone connects via Wi-Fi, the, the protocol that underlies all of that is the internet protocol. And when you talk about an IP address, that is a number associated with a device, a unique address, at least on your network, that allows devices to talk to each other and know how to respond when a request comes in. So IPv4, that's Internet Protocol version 4, has been around for a very long time. And IP, you know, IPv4 addresses you've probably seen, you know, it's like 10.1.1.55 or, or you've, seen, you've seen ones like this. There are four sets of decimal digits separated by periods. And the problem with IPv4, uh, <laughs> which was created many decades ago, is that it can only uniquely identify about 4 billion devices. And you think that's a lot of devices, but <laughs> we've got way, way more devices than that that are connected to the internet these days. And the way we fix that is we have reserved sets of address spaces that we reuse. These are sets of or classes of IP addresses that can be reused, but they're only supposed to be used on local networks and never exposed directly to the internet. And this is how your home network works. Uh, your router has a uh, DHCP server in it dynamic host control protocol. And when any of your devices want to connect to the Wi-Fi or connect to the network, uh, even via cable, uh, it puts out a thing saying, hey, I want to connect to the network. Somebody please give me an, ad uh, an address to use. And this DHCP server hears that request and says, okay, here you go. Here's your address. From now on, whenever you send and receive you know, IP packets over this network, use this address. And that way we'll know how to find you and you're not going to collide or be ambiguous with any other device on your network. So these IPv4 addresses are local to your network. And my house and your house probably have devices that have the same number because these limited sets of addresses are reused. So what happens at your router is it actually has a public facing IP address that's totally different. This is one that is globally routable anywhere on the entire internet, handed to you by your internet service provider and given to your modem or router or whatever. And then your router does this thing called network address translation. And the analogy I usually like to make here is it's kind of like a big company or maybe a college campus. Let's say I was work, I was still working at Cisco and someone says, all right, I know Carrie works at Cisco, so I'm going to send this package to Carrie Parker at Cisco. Now, they don't know where I'm at in Cisco. Cisco's a huge company. They might know that I'm in RTP, but they don't know which building, what cubicle, what floor or whatever. But Cisco does. So they send it to, you know, Carrie Parker at Cisco RTP. And then the Cisco RTP mailroom gets that. And they know what the internal address is. They know I'm a building X, floor five, cubicle, whatever. Uh, and so that's an internal address. Nobody outside the company needs to know that. 
And there may be some other building somewhere that has the same building number, same floor number, same cubicle number as mine, but it's for Microsoft or some other company. Nobody needs to know about those addresses other than Cisco. They only need to be unique within the Cisco system. That's the same thing that's happening in your local network. Now, IPv6, the newer version of this that has been very, very slowly rolling out over the last, gosh, I don't know, decade or two, has way, way, way more addresses, like effectively an infinite number of addresses. And so you think, okay, great. Why don't we, why don't we just go to that? Why don't everybody move to that? Well, the problem is we really don't need it. IPv4 works just fine in almost all situations. In fact, with, with the network address translation fix, we honestly haven't been hurting too badly for IPv4 addresses because of the way this system works. But with an IPv6 address, you could have a unique, globally routable IP address, an IPv6 address, for every single IoT device and computer and smartphone and server on the planet a gazillion times over. We would never, we'll, we'll never run out. So you don't need this network address translation function. Your, all the devices in your house could be directly and uniquely addressable on the internet. If they were just directly exposed to the internet, uh, they could just use this, uh, this address and be routable to and from anything else on the internet. That's actually not a good thing. You want some security by obscurity. You want that gatekeeper function, that firewall and router and NAT system between all your devices in your network and the wild, wild west of the internet. So here's my answer to the, to the listener's question. And it's a little bit of a punt, uh, but my basic philosophy on IPv6 is in your house, you don't need it and don't use it. In particular, I would never want a case where any of the devices on my home network could be directly addressable by anything else on the wider internet. I don't know for sure that my router might try to do that, like it might turn off the NAT function if my devices uh, were using IPv6 addresses, but I don't take the chance. So I would personally, if I were you, I would just disable the use of IPv6. You shouldn't need it. And I think it can actually open you up to some particular problems, security and privacy. Now, I did do a little research on this. There have been some reported problems with IPv6 and WireGuard VPNs, so there is a link in the show notes if you want to follow that up further and still try to use IPv6 and anybody else who might be having this problem as well. Uh, but I really think that for me, my, my solution for most people is just to go into your router and just disable the use of IPv6 at all. You honestly just, you don't need it. So I'm still collecting questions. I've still got some to answer, but uh, I'll keep taking more. You can always uh, send me more questions to find out how to do that. Go to fdsd.me slash Q&A. And there's a link to that in the show notes. It'll give you all the information you need to send me your Dear Carrie questions. And once a month, I will pull a name out of the hat for all the people who have submitted questions, and I will send them a free PDF copy of my book. And you will now get the fifth edition. And by the way, some of you, in fact, everybody I think who's won so far, when I asked them, said they want the fifth edition. They wanted to wait. So sorry for the wait being so long, but for all of you who I have notified that you have won the monthly Dear Carrie free book thing, uh, I will be sending you the fifth edition shortly. All right. So we are already running long today, but I want to do a quick tip of the week, and then I will point you at the uh, blog article uh, for the full details. But this tip of the week is about planting your flag or staking your claim. And again, I'm going to keep this kind of short, uh, and you can just read the article for the full details. But basically, I you know, I try to tell you to not have any more accounts than, are, than you absolutely have to have on the web. You know, minimize 
how many accounts you have, minimize your exposure, close old accounts that you're not using. But just by virtue of being a citizen, you probably have several accounts that you might not even be aware of whether you are using them or not. And just being honestly a, a somebody who lives literally on the grid uh, and has utility bills, for example, you've got accounts that you may not realize you have, online accounts, that you may never have accessed, never even thought to try to access them, but you probably have them. And what you really want to do is you want to make sure that you go ahead and register for those accounts if necessary, log in, change the password to something really strong, and claim those accounts before bad guys do. There are a lot of nasty things that bad guys can and have gotten up to by claiming these accounts for people on their behalf. For example, in the United States, uh, we all pay taxes and we all have an IRS.gov account whether we use it or not. So if I'm a bad guy and I get enough information that I can register an account in your name, which is probably your name, your address, maybe your date of birth, and certainly your social security number. And of course we know that in data breaches, unfortunately, a lot of that information does get loose. If I have that information on you and I can open up your IRS account for you, I can file tax returns fraudulent tax returns in your name and tell them to send me the check and claim a huge refund and basically set you up for fraud with the IRS. I can also claim your social security benefits. I can take over your account and it's a, it's a kind of identity theft. Furthermore, you probably have an account for all of your household utilities. You've got water bills, electric bills, uh, gas bills, potentially your cell phone, your landline, if you still have one, your internet service. These are all things that these are all accounts that you have, some of which you probably have already logged into online, some of which you may not have. You may have, you know, if you've lived in a house long enough, you may have set up this account a long, long time ago, forgotten about it, set up auto pay, you know, maybe auto draft from your account or auto charge to a credit card and just forgot you even had this account. Or if you've really lived there a long time, it may be these accounts have come up since you have had an account with them. You had a paper account where you got a monthly billing statement, but somewhere along the line, you know, these utility companies created online accounts for everybody as well. And you may never have actually set yours up. But if someone else does it in, in your stead, they can still get up to mischief. So the point of this is you need to plant your flag. So you, to, you need to find these accounts and go ahead and create your accounts, set really, really strong passwords for these accounts and set up two-factor authentication if you can. And then you may never log in ever again. But now you've at least made it so that the bad guys can't do that for you. So the article has a long list of things, including the links on how to set some of these up. But here's some places where you should definitely plant your flag before somebody else does it for you. Social Security, Medicare, Internal Revenue Service. Uh, the United States Postal Service actually has this really cool service called Informed Delivery that can show you uh, all the packages and letters that you're going to get that day and help you see which ones you may have missed. That's really cool. But bad guys can also take this account from you and then see some pretty personal information about, you know, your mail. So you probably should claim that one as well. Uh, your local department of motor vehicles or your bureau of motor vehicles account, uh, local property and taxes, maybe your election agency, credit bureaus, Equifax, Experian, TransUnion, and also the newer one or the one maybe people are less familiar with called Innovus. Obviously, things like your financial institutions, you probably already done this, maybe, but you know, in case you haven't, you know, your banks, your credit cards, your investments, including 401k, 
your mortgage company and any other loans that you have probably have online access, all your utilities uh, and other services like, you know, cable, satellite, internet, cellular, landline, if you still have that, your home and auto insurance, and maybe even your medical patient portals. These are all accounts that you probably have that you may never have accessed online. Maybe you haven't even registered them, but you want to claim these before the bad guys do. All right, there you have it. There's your news, your Derek Carey question, and your tip of the week. All right, we're running long. I'm going to stop right here. Again, if you're going to buy the book, now is a great time to do it. The price is really low on Amazon. Uh, if you go to fdsd.me slash fifth, 5th, you'll get all the information. That's a great article to share with others as well. If you want to help others to get more private and more secure, share this article with them. And there's other things you can do too to help me spread the word. The more of us do all these very simple things, the better off we will all be. And finally, if you do buy the book off Amazon, I would really, really, truly appreciate a nice five-star review. They did make me start over, at least so far. I haven't been able to get them to transfer my reviews from the fourth edition. So I have no reviews, zero right now. So I need to build up a, a, a nice catalog of five-star reviews again for this new fifth edition. Next week, we'll have our interview with Susie Dawson from panquick.com. I've got another interview coming up with a representative from Bitwarden and some other great stuff coming on the pike. So if you have not already, subscribe now and then you won't miss a thing. That'll do it this week. Take care, everybody. And until next week, as always, be safe out there and don't get caught with your drawbridge down. <laughs>